Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Clay. <laughs> Bernard, how are you? Well, I'm well, and I'm sitting here in NYU, Shanghai, New York University, Shanghai, and sitting right across me is Professor Clay Shirkley, Associate Professor for Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, and Professor NYU Shanghai Interactive Media and Arts Department. And I am a fan of his TED Talks. <laughs> so, yes, Clay. I know you started off in your career by being a writer and a teacher on the social and economic effects of internet technologies. Mm -hmm. How did that interest came about? You know, it's interesting. I actually started my career as a kind of a, a sideways move. I had moved to New York to go into the theater. And so I was living in New York as an artist when this internet thing showed up in the early 1990s. And I got interested in that, joined a, an online service called Panics that I just joined as a user. But I was so captivated with what the internet made possible that I spent a couple of years just trying to understand how it worked. And by the mid-90s, when the web came along as a real commercial platform, I took a job as uh, chief technology officer of a web design shop. I had basically learned enough Perl to do some you know, to do ba the basic jobs we, we needed done in those days and joined this kind of web design, this wave of web design shops that came up. But I was always more interested in the larger effects of the web, not just building individual websites for clients. And so when Hunter College came along and asked, you know, we need somebody to teach Web 101, basically, I jumped at the chance, started doing that, discovered I, I, I liked teaching, and then Red Burns at, at NYU recruited me to her program, to, to ITP back in 2001. And that's really when that became the sort of center of the focus of my work. And you came to Asia and now you're teaching in NYU Shanghai. I mean, yep. before that, maybe what I want to do is to talk a little bit first about your two famous TED Talks that I've read. I showed, I've screened it for my students in mm -hmm. Nanyang Technological University yep. on the one about social media, the impact of social media making history and the other one on SOPA. So yep. I wanted to sort of get your sense of what is your thesis on the evolving nature of social media and internet to the society as a whole. You know, the, the, there are so many effects of the internet. As I often say to my students, the main thing the, the main thing to remember about the internet is that there is no main thing, right? There are all of these different effects. It's changed costs and the ability of people to coordinate and publish in all kinds of different ways. So I study the social effects, the, really the way, the way it changes group life. And the big change there is it lowers coordination costs. Anytime any group of people want to do anything as simple as decide what restaurant to go to or what movie to go see, there is some cost in sort of negotiating how the group will behave. What the internet does is provide a platform for allowing very, very large groups to synchronize their work without having the coordination cost be so high. 
So if you look at Wikipedia, if you look at open source software efforts, what you see are people who are able to combine their work together to create now these very large, very important aggregates of, of information without having to go through all the coordination costs that are typical of a business. So you could argue about which effect of the internet is the most important worldwide. It's not even a conversation I would, I would particularly want to have. But in my domain, I think the, the, most important, the most important thing to happen in the social domain is what Seb Paquet is called ridiculously easy group forming, mm -hmm. right? The idea that any group of people now has access to these tools where they can very easily come together and share their work. And we're still seeing the ramifications of that. So that question I have is the following. Given that what the internet and all these social media collaboration platforms do is to allow the production of content to be easier, and now everyone can be their own digital journalism writer, mm -hmm. anybody can create his podcast like myself, mm -hmm. and everybody can create their own YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that you people could actually dis discover more and more content which makes the whole internet inundated with a lot of content mm -hmm. and subsequently we have people now coming up with web platforms that are actually doing curates curation right, for example yep. pinterest product hunt yep. example of that so we went from a already a curated platform with the mainstream media with recording studios they're able to select the artists that they want to now again it get distributed back into you know in in the artist's being on the long tail of the content yep. and then going back to these curation platforms. Do you see this kind of cycle changing with new technologies? In fact, what we would call news and social media today will become a mainstream media someday. Yeah, I mean, it's, in a way, much social media is already mainstream. I, one of the most interesting things I did for a book I wrote in 2010 about the internet called Here Comes Everybody was to go and research the history of email. And the writing about email in the early 1990s was, oh my God, this is crazy. People are sending each other messages, but they're electronic. And email is now considered the most workhorse, boring, normal thing. So we're already seeing exactly the, the, the phenomenon you're talking about, which is just the phrase new media tells you something, which is at some point it stops being new and it just becomes media. And that's that's happening now. We take email for granted. We take weblogs for granted. We take Wikipedia for granted. We're starting to take Facebook for granted after this long period of people freaking out that Facebook was going to become enormous and, and, and powerful. It became enormous and powerful and people just got used to that and are now going on assuming that that's true. And the, the arc you drew at the beginning of that, of that question, which is you make it easier for people to do things, you get a flood of content, and then you get the rise of these curation platforms. That happens over and over again in the history of media. You look at, you look at the invention of the printing press, all of a sudden, after Gutenberg, you go from days, days per book, how many days does it take you to make a book? You go from days per book to books per day, right? You get this huge increase in the number of books. And then people start freaking out. We can't keep track of anything. The books themselves are so hard to read. People don't memorize the contents anymore the way they do with the Bible, so we don't know where to look things up. And then you start to see page numbers, chapters, author pages, indexes, libraries start to get cataloging systems, and you get this incredible social reaction to the abundance. And as, I, as I often tell my students, right, the institutions you get in the aftermath of any media revolution are often not the institutions formed around the media, they're institutions formed around solving the problems the media causes. So libraries, bookstores, cataloging systems, 
chapter titles, page numbers, all of those were responses to problems created by the abundance of books. So would I be right to say that these digital curation platforms that I see today is a result of the inundation of content that's caused by this ability to be able to produce your own content for YouTube, from SoundCloud, or from any like medium today yeah. where you write your text. That's that's absolutely right. And so we, we had in a in a world of scarce media that we lived in, in the 20th century, we had a model of filter then publish, right? Someone at a TV station or a record studio or a movie movie producer would decide whether or not to produce something. So they would filter it first and then they would publish it. If anybody can publish anything, then there's no filtering step. So now we have a world of publish then filter. The filter comes after the fact. And all the things you just listed are these kind of after the fact filters that are just designed to help people deal with the incredible onslaught of content. Um, you know, as I often say, it's not, it's not information overload, it's filter failure, right? What happened when the web came along is all the filters we had for printed content and TV and movies which assumed a small number of professionals producing a small amount of media all of those systems were not adequate to handle a world in which anybody could say anything at any given time. Mm. And so we now have this scramble to create all these new kinds of systems. You know, Google has PageRank, there's social recommendation engines on social media sites, and they're all just attempts to say, I want to show you more stuff that you might be interested in and less stuff that you are not interested in. And that's such an enormous problem in this current landscape that there are company after company after company are built on different solutions to that problem, everything from Google to Pinterest. Mm. And so they all have their own wall garden, but they also allow people to actually build on top of their wall gardens as well, right? Well, so the, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of like an open and closed environment, yes, but yes. it's controlled. Yeah, so Tim Wu wrote an amazing book about openness and closeness in the media environment called The Master Switch, in which he said you often get media revolutions that start with openness because openness produces all of these incredible characteristics of growth that we saw on the early internet. But some combination of needing to manage the problems and wanting to capture the economics leads to some degree of closedness. And these systems fight between how open versus how closed are they going to be. Radio and television became much more closed than books and magazines because it was easier for people to have the kind of, for companies to have the kind of defensive cordon around preventing competition, right? When you have something like in the United States, the Federal Communications Commission, you could create the conditions under which it's just hard for competitors to edit, edit, enter the market. When any bookstore can take a book from any publisher, you still get economies of scale. You still get a big group of publishers. But the book world and the magazine world remained for centuries relatively competitive. And in the century in which radio and TV came along, books and magazines were more competitive than radio and TV. So the huge question for the internet is, how much of that openness can we preserve? There are enormous sources of interest in taming the openness of the internet so that there are a small number of very large, relatively predictable companies uh, producing you know, most of the content, hosting most of the media. I mean, we're, we're sitting in Shanghai right now. Beijing very much wants a world, at least inside China, where it minimizes the number of social surprises that 
that you can get from the media. So Beijing wants a world of maximum acceleration of the economic value of the internet, but minimum threat of surprising tools of coordination. You get much less innovation from the outside the way you get in the United States. In the US, Instagram and WhatsApp were invented outside of Facebook and then later bought. Here, Beijing wants to create the circumstances under which, say, WeChat, the Tencent's messaging app, can build a platform and keep innovation inside of WeChat. And of course, the government wants that as well, because it just makes it easier to deal with their, you know, their issues of, of internet censorship and, and control of freedom of assembly. Mm. So you talk a lot about the internet and you also have one very great TED talk which I really loved it and even screened it is the one on SOPA mm -hmm. and about this whole regulation I, I like the way how you presented the entire conversation Thank with you. the cake analogy yep. yep and the point of it is that internet is becoming more and more balkanized different countries with their own legislation is mm -hmm. trying to carved out their territories. I mean, China with the Great Wall, Firewall of China. Yep. Where do you see this actually heading towards? And I, I like the part at the end of that talk where you said that this is not over. There's going to be version right. two, version right. three right. coming right. on. Right. I mean, so the huge, with well, the huge question about what's often called the splinter net, which is to say dramatically different regulatory norms within these countries, is a big part of this this piece I've just written on Xiaomi called Little yeah. Rice, which is about yeah. mobile phone Xiaomi and the Chinese dream. Mm. So Xiaomi is a services company in China. Their platform is the mobile phones they sell. They're famous for these mobile phones, but, but from the beginning, they were designed to be a services company. And so using that lens, I started looking at the question you just asked about, about the sort of splintered internet. The, what everybody gets about the, the national, the norm of the national internet is it takes a lot of work for a company to draw borders of control around its political borders, right? Famously difficult in Northern Africa, in part because of the internet, in part because of Al Jazeera. So you get revolution moving from one company to the country to the next, Tunisia to Egypt to Libya kind of stuff. So everybody focuses on the political borders. But what interested me in this book was also the, the economic question. Right. So when Uber wants to open in China, it's at a disadvantage because maps in quite, quite by design, maps are not allowed to work well in China. China does not want civilians to have accurate maps. And so many people have the experience of opening up mapping apps and finding that GPS is not putting the coordinates where they go because you're not, by law in China, you're not allowed to put a GPS point in an accurate spot on a map. Uh, so there's this, this, Difficulty in moving services inside, from the outside into China, which is a kind of a trade barrier. What became clear to me in, in, in researching Xiaomi was there's another trade barrier, which is going from inside the country out. That if you can make a service that works well in China, you've made a service that works well at scale because everything that works well in China has to work well under crushing load, which would, and you, you've made a service that works well at relatively low cost because uh, although China is rich, the Chinese are poor, right? It's the, mm. it's the biggest economy in the world, but divided by, you know, one and a third billion people, you've got a GDP the size of, a GDP per capita rather, a size of you know, Tunisia or Dominican Republic. So you'd think the Chinese would have this incredible advantage in exporting these services. But a lot of what goes into being a services company in China 
is actually doing what Beijing wants, hosting your servers uh, with access to Beijing, hosting things unencrypted, putting your own political controls in the system and so forth. And this question now of subdividing the internet into these different zones, one of the things that I think that isn't, isn't well appreciated is every country has a dilemma between how much value it wants from the market and how much political control it wants over the media environment. And so far, the questions have been mainly political. Right between the the green wave in Iran, which was the you know the first real challenge to an authoritarian government, as opposed to say Moldova, which was which was at least nominally a democracy. Iran was the first challenge to uh, you know essentially a, a, an authoritarian system. You you know you then run from that to the Arab Spring. Everybody was focusing on the political value to these companies of subdividing the internet. But what's interesting to me is the tension between the the political control of the borders and the economic loss of having your services economy also stop at the borders. And this, I think, is the is the the coming dilemma. No one is more competent at, at censoring the internet than the Chinese, and yet they can't cut themselves off completely because it's an export-driven economy. So the interesting, you know, you see Turkey and Iran saying, oh, we're going to have these national internets, but they can't actually do it, right? You can't actually cut your country off and just have a country-specific intranet without doing terrific damage to your economy. So I think the big question we face now isn't so much about political actors as about economic actors. Um, Apple was recently in the news for shutting off its news app for users inside China because it obviously is complying with what Beijing expects in terms of censorship. If that damages Apple's prospects elsewhere, the cost of doing that is relatively high. If, on the other hand, the rest of the world says, do whatever you like to the Chinese or even, even people inside China, I just... You know, I, I don't really care. Mm. Then we'll head into a world of of quite splintered internet, and that I think is what's at stake. Is it's not just the politics anymore. Now it's the politics and the economics that are in some kind of tension with each other, and it makes it much harder to interpret what's going on at these countries' borders. Oh. And that is the book that you are going to be publishing soon, which yep. is called Little Rice Smartphones, Xiaomi, and the Chinese Dream. I hear the smartphones and Xiaomi. Yep. What is the Chinese dream then? So the Chinese dream is something that has started under the Xi government. Essentially, the Chinese dilemma for, uh, or rather the dilemma of the Communist Party of China in the current era is that pure economic growth for, for most members of Chinese society is no longer an adequate source of governmental legitimacy, right? From, from Mr. Deng's arrival in the late 1970s, Mao dies, Deng Xiaoping takes over a couple of years later. The amount of economic growth China went through for the next 30 years was literally unprecedented in the history of the world. There is no other country that had as much growth for as many people for a sustained period. Mm. And for a long time, the answer to why is this government in power was not the people elected them, but rather they're doing so much good, right? It's the largest anti-poverty program ever in human history. Growth is slowing and income inequality is rising incredibly dramatically in this country. So you can no longer rely on everyone who is middle class or especially worrying for the Chinese lower middle class to just say, oh, the future is rosy because this economic miracle is going to continue. So 
since the Xi government has taken over, they have been looking for other sources of legitimacy. And you hear a lot now about the Chinese dream, which is this linking of a program of national greatness with the, you know, resurrecting the old Confucian goal of being a moderately prosperous society. So the Chinese dream, along with an emphasis of 5,000 years of Chinese history and so on, is an attempt to create a legitimacy for the government that doesn't come from exposing themselves to voters, obviously since it's a single-party system, they don't want to have a vote for national leaders, but binds people in a sort of a shared, shared sense of what China is and means. And the reason I linked uh, the Chinese dream with Xiaomi is there is this enormous pride in Xiaomi. It's an incredible company. It's often called the Chinese Apple. It's an amazing design firm. It's an amazing electronics firm. It's an amazing manufacturing firm. And yet Xiaomi has always had global ambitions from the beginning, right? Xiaomi has always wanted to be a global company. And so the, the, the Chinese dream, in a way, is a part of this sort of strategy tax that Chinese services companies pay, where the more you are part of this idea of China as an entity separate from the rest of the world, China as a place able to shield its norms from the rest of the developed world's norms, is in tension with the global ambitions, right? I mean, Singapore is the example of this right now, where for a long time when people were talking about the Chinese attitude towards technocratic government, Singapore was the example. You look at what Lee Kuan Yew has done, right? This is also a society in which sort of Western-style political freedoms are restricted, but the economic growth has been worthwhile. And then you suddenly get to this point where Singapore starts relaxing its controls on the media and the elections become more contested. And all of a sudden, China needs to say, no, no, forget Singapore. We, had, we, we never wanted to compare ourselves to Singapore. So China is trying to do something. China is trying to avoid doing what Singapore is currently doing, which is slowly moving into a world where more citizens have uh, expect to have their voices recognized. And the government is more uncertain about who will be in charge in any electoral cycle. That is, that is the nightmare that China wants to avoid. And so the Chinese dream, if it works the way the Xi government works, it is a kind of a moderate social glue that keeps people, keeps Chinese people proud of being Chinese, tied to each other, accepting of, of current government norms, um, but doesn't actually interfere with the business of running an export-driven economy. If it fails in the direction of being too little, then people actually won't, the kind of nationalism stirred up by the Chinese dream will be of a sort of lightweight flag-waving variety, but people will still demand openness and representation. And if it succeeds too much, the nationalism starts to damage China's ability to have service economies claim that they're just offering, you know, services that anybody would want while also doing what Beijing wants to do. And it's that it's that latter tension, I think. It's the Xi government is, I think, much likelier to oversucceed than undersucceed in driving nationalism. But if there is too much Chinese exceptionalism in a way that that angers other countries, you start to get a world where Chinese businesses that want to export services find themselves getting in real trouble. Is that what is happening to like Huawei in maybe the earlier of the right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the Huawei and Cisco example where in each country 
the national security argument said, the Chinese said, why are we importing goods from Cisco? The you know, NSA may be spying on us. And the U.S. said, why are we importing networking goods from Huawei? They're, you know, this Shenzhen-based company could just be doing what Beijing wants. Mm. And as always, there is some reality to the national security argument. But in many cases, national security and trade barriers work quite well together. And so both the United States and China are bad actors in terms of using this kind of national security argument to essentially erect obstacles to trade. But all of that is at the business-to-business -business level, right? Cisco and Huawei sell you know, the kind of networking gear you and I would never own, right? Mm -hmm. These are racks and racks of high-quality servers. What happened to Xiaomi is like what happened to Huawei and like what happened to Cisco, but it happens at the level of the individual phone. So in Singapore and also Hong Kong and, and India, when Xiaomi phones first went on sale, people looked at the network traffic out of the Xiaomi phones and said, these phones are reporting back to an IP address in Beijing. And people flipped out. And Xiaomi said, look, it's just performance statistics. We want to know how your phones are doing, right? We are in the business, not just of making your phones better, but literally shipping new software every week. So we want, we want these performance data. But if it bugs you that the server is in Beijing, we'll turn it off. But that little taste of the kind of skepticism that the rest of the world might have is, I think, an indicator that the services market could get very politicized for Xiaomi and other companies um, over the next five years. Do you think Xiaomi is the right choice to depict the, this new Chinese dream of being in the innovation space? Because I think in their five-year plan recently, they are focusing on trying to get this goal by 2020 that you know, they, China can is, have, have the capability of export outside. They were trying to follow the Germans' model right. Right. where they want to do the... the the new made in China 2025, but actually upstream innovation. But given that, that, that the kind of the political attitude, uh, the political view, which is actually diametrically opposed to the innovation view, where do you see this? How do you see the Chinese will be able to mitigate this tension and try to export it outside? Yeah, so that, that's such a good question. So interestingly, you know what? I, you know, I, I come to this as an American whose view of China is so clouded by recent American attitudes toward China have treated it as a kind of you know homogenous lump. And when you get here and you start to pay attention to what the government is doing, you realize there is no the government in China anymore than there is the government in the United States, right? You've got the local policeman and you've got Barack Obama, and there is no significant way in which they are coordinated. So there is a faction in the government that is genuinely committed to the kind of openness that will allow innovation to succeed. And when you look at the kind of policies they put in place, I was just at the Maker Fair in Shenzhen, June, I guess. The government has announced that this is the year of makerspaces, right? This is, the, you know, so there is this, this huge interest in creating spaces where entrepreneurs can come and try out new things at low cost and scale quickly and so forth and so on. And then there is this other faction of the government that says, whenever we have allowed people to discuss things too freely, topics come up that we don't want discussed, and then we have to crack down. Mm. And the factional battle between those, you know, those parts of the government is really how this tension that you point to is going to get mitigated. 
if you know that if they can successfully wall off economic activity from political activity, then they can get growth and control. They got that in Shenzhen by saying, look, we don't care what you're making for other people. As long as it leaves the country, it's no business of ours. So they allowed people in Shenzhen to make electronics that was more open than the electronics they would allow to be sold in China, right? So the PCs come out of Shenzhen like mad, but the PCs in China, they want much more controlled. So manufacturing offered a relatively simple way to solve this tension. The dilemma they've got now is that services are different. Services mean that you expect people to produce surprises. And when you say the attitude of, of people in the Chinese government is diametrically opposed to the, to the innovation economy, and it's certainly not universally true. There yeah, are, it's not there, universally true. It's, it's a spectrum, right? People, right. Yeah. But the people who are most opposed to it on that spectrum are the people who hear that innovation requires surprises and think, our department is not in the business of liking surprises, right? There's, there are, there's a class of people in the Chinese government for whom surprises are per se bad. Mm. And that's, that is, I think, the great tension. China, better than almost any country in the world, is good at launching a system and launching the system that controls the system at the same time. Mm. There's almost never a pure effort in one direction without some either accelerant or brake, and then they, they drive with both, basically with both gas and brakes all the time. So the arc of Chinese society has been in the direction of more personal freedom for individuals and more responsiveness by the government. The government genuinely doesn't want corruption or inefficiency. And when now people use social media to complain about you know, corrupt local officials, it's very often taken as a signal of real information. So you can see the government sort of slowly drawing a ring around a handful of issues that they're saying, you, you can't cross this line. But other than that, you know, we, we have an anti-corruption campaign. We have a campaign to increase, you know, free trade, all of these kinds of experiments. And they're coming down to an almost, an almost negative theory of government. They published in 2011, they published the seven don't mentions, and then there were the five no's. It's always these negative things. You, we can't have a discussion of parties alternating power. We can't have a discussion of an independent judiciary. But in fact, they are otherwise, the, the Communist Party is otherwise relatively open to other kinds of innovations, as long as it leads to economic growth. So the real tension in this Chinese dream thing is it's not just it's not just bullshit, right? It's not just the Chinese trying to buy people off with propaganda the way, say, the East Germans did. The Chinese economy is not stagnating. What it is, it's an attempt to say, we'll give you a very high degree of economic, or sorry, we'll give you a very high degree of personal freedom and now a relatively high degree of economic growth. China seems to be past its hypergrowth phase, but still 4% is you know, nothing to sneeze at, 4 4.5%, which is what's sort of expected this year. But in return for 45 5% growth and a lot of personal freedom, you're going to give up certain expectations about political freedom. So far, the question has only been, will that bargain work in China? And the answer has been yes. The question now with the services economy is, will that make Chinese services companies 
so untrustworthy to the rest of the world that they will have a harder time competing on services. So if you look at India, right, they built an incredible services economy. If you look at a company like Infosys, they could never have done what they did if people didn't trust that an Indian firm had the services model and a lack of interference from the Indian government that would let an Infosys take a services contract for large companies in the rest of the world. It's very difficult to imagine a Chinese Infosys. It's very difficult to imagine a Chinese firm saying, we've set up in Beijing, we're a very large company, and that means we have good, tight relationships with Beijing. We store all of our information unencrypted on servers in Beijing, and please hire us to do this work for you. It is, it is hard to imagine right now that company succeeding except in countries that have regimes that explicitly want the Chinese model. You can imagine it succeeding, for example, in Ethiopia or in Turkey. And so the big question for Xiaomi and for companies like it is, are services for ordinary people going to be subjected to the same kind of skepticism? And when you look at the example from Singapore, from Hong Kong, from India, just the fact that the Xiaomi phones were reporting performance data to Beijing caused people to freak out. So it turns out that there is a bigger obstacle to exporting services from inside China than people had imagined even a year ago. And when you look at the big internet companies, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, it becomes really hard to imagine Alibaba doing well outside of this economy. In fact, they pulled back from their big Western e-commerce effort earlier this year because the enormous success of Taobao and Tmall and Alipay has actually not translated well outside the country. But if you look at it from the reverse, by them going out to get the companies to go into China through Tmall and etc., they have actually created a different kind of economy, right? Um, so um, Alibaba, yeah. Oh, so, mean, so, so, so the original plan was to go called global yes, expansion, yes, right? Yes, but I think right. it seems that from so, some of the public appearances yeah. at the moment is that they're trying to move all the Germans to get the Germans to set up T-malls yeah. in China. So the, extra- the extraordinary success of China has been in saying, if you would like access to the world's largest market, please stop off at this little toll gate and have a conversation there first. And that has been incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. What I think people didn't realize until this year is that that process was not symmetrical. That the attractiveness of the Chinese market to Western firms will lead companies like Apple to do things like censor their news app in order to get access to this market. But that the reverse value is not is not only not in evidence, but there's some evidence that there's actually negative value in trying to take a services company, not a product company, but a services company from inside China to out. Uh, that does not that does not wreck the whole Chinese economy. Obviously, it's still mainly manufacturing. What it does mean is that in the usual shift from manufacturing to services, China's transition may be bumpier than people have been expecting. Because getting, yeah, getting a German company to come and sell products here is a great source of negotiation with a Siemens or, you know, 
Bosch. AKG Bosch, exactly. But that taking an Infosys style or even a Xiaomi style services company from here outwards is going to be tougher than people had imagined. I have this question. Mm. One of the things that the Chinese government did very well was to protect these services company from being overtaken <laughs> by the foreign players. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I'll use Baidu as an example. Right, right, right. So Baidu yeah. has, I think, almost 90%, 96% of the search, and I think Google's are barely zero now. Yeah, yeah. well, so, Google's are zero because so, they've been completely blocked. Yeah. But. The flip side of that is that when they try to go out of this economy, they have problems of expanding out. I think it's yeah, exactly. the same for this, this is, Tencent, yeah. it's the same for Alibaba yes, yes, as yes. well. So what are the things they need to do in the more economic sense, not from the political perspective, but more from the economic perspective to actually get the trust that you thought that, you know, like the Xiaomi case where it was just by having analytics being shipped back to Beijing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's, 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 the, that's the $50 million question, that is, right? $50 million is a very, very small, a very low amount for the, yeah. the actual value of that question. <laughs> oh, the billion dollar that's question. probably a trillion RMB question. So it is, it is a really extraordinary test case. And part of the problem with looking at the Chinese economy is there is no other country in the world that has the combination of enormously talented labor, enormous scale, and low cost. China is simply able to do things that other countries would, would not even be able to contemplate. When they want to flood the Chinese internet with these so-called sunshine comments, there's a, there's a group sometimes called the Umaus on the, the 50 cent army on the, on the idea that everybody's paid 50 cents per positive comment, right? If you went around in the U.S. saying, oh, the U.S. government is just going to have millions and millions of people flood the U.S. internet with positive comments, it's ridiculous, laughable, would never work. China can just do that. So you don't want to overdraw too many cases from from, you know, if you're, if you're using China as an example, it's generally an example of one. Uh, we can't always learn what China sh should do from looking at other countries or vice versa. But, but one of the things that China has done is it had, it's had a protected market while it grew. And one class of economic growth is to have a protected market locally and then to expand outwards. This is the Kairetsu model from Japan, the Chebol model from, from South Korea, where Samsung is ma mainly selling things to other, other South Koreans and then suddenly is able, not suddenly, but is, is able eventually to take on world markets. The problem in China is that they can't do exactly the thing you, you suggested they do at the beginning of the question, which is separate economics from politics. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult to draw a line. And increasingly, they have found that when they try to draw that line really cleanly, it comes back and bites them. So the New York Times writes something bad about China. China says, well, we'll just knock the New York Times off the Chinese internet, right? Block the New York Times from the, from the Great Firewall of China. So it seems like a problem solved. No more, no more New York Times content inside China. Except then when the New York Times writes a story that moves the world's markets, the Chinese traders lose because they didn't get to read the story and they didn't know what was coming. So then China has to move to a much more selective, temporary style of blocking. So instead of getting more restrictive, the Great Firewall has been getting more targeted because they can't afford economically to treat all political information as being something that is kept out of the country. So the trick for them is that the dividing line they desperately want, we can just put a, put a clean, 
clean line down and say on this side it's economics, on that side it's politics, not only doesn't exist, it exists less and less with, with, with passing time. So with the services companies, wouldn't they end up adopting two systems? One system within China yes, and, that's exactly, and then the other system outside China where they have to compete with Google. That is exactly Apple. precisely what Xiaomi has done. They ship two versions of their operating system, one with Google Apps installed, one with Google Apps not installed. Interestingly, in the old days, they shipped with Google Apps not installed, but then they put up this very frank post on the on the MIUI forums, on their operating system forums, that said, hey, you can't get Google Apps, sorry, that's just the government's rules, but you can go here and get the installer. And then at a later date, when the restrictions on Google clamped down more, Xiaomi wasn't even allowed to apologize or point anymore. But on the far side of the firewall, they ship a version of Android that has Google Apps installed as the contract requires uh, worldwide. So there's just a certain strategy tax in maintaining two versions uh, of the operating system. The problem is going to be not, can you hire enough smart engineers to have a system with Google in for one country and not no Google in the other country? Anybody could do that. It's like translating something into Hindi. You only get the value in India, but it's worth it. The problem is, if the fact that Xiaomi ships different operating systems to different people if it angers the Chinese as they come to feel they're getting an inferior product, or it angers rest of world as they feel like they can't trust the Chinese to run a services company, then it starts to be more than just a strategy tax. Then it starts to be a real obstacle to expansion. Uh, and here's my penultimate question. So Asian companies, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Taiwanese, they mm -hmm. have all built very popular hardware, but software is the problem because Maybe excluding gaming. This is yeah, I was this, question, say. this question came from my good friend Gang Kanai, who actually got us this interview done. Yeah. So without the control of uh, open source software, I mean not just modifying say Android Linux, I mean it seems that the Asian companies will always be at the mercy of Western software developers. Is this true and does it matter in the longer term? Because I mean WeChat has shown that you can actually build everything on top of their platform right. and running everything right. on chat. Right. Would this dynamic change? There, so there is absolutely nothing in the software world that would suggest that Asian programmers are somehow less talented, less sophisticated, that the code they write is less flexible or less capable. And when you see platform innovation, if you look at the CHTML revolution with Docomo in Japan in the 1990s, you look at the Psy world in Dottori in Korea in the 2000s, you see these places where they make things that are incredibly popular and widespread. So there are, I think, I think most of the obstacles to the kind of innovation you're talking about right now are situational. They're not, they're not deep structural issues. One is that, for the moment, Asian tastes and Western tastes have not converged. And the West has an advantage in, you know, a Hollywood movie is going to be more widely distributed than a South Korean movie or a Japanese movie. But anyone who's seen anime and manga go from being a handful of geeks off at the side to being a kind of worldwide obsession. I mean, if you look at Comic-Con, if you look at the card games kids are playing, among 11-year-olds... Stuff that comes from Japan or South Korea is just stuff, right? There's nothing weird about it. My daughter is a fan of One Direction and EXO. And if you asked her to pick based on country of origin, she would notice that the EXO guys are Korean. But it doesn't, there's not much more to it than that. 
So one cultural, I think the the the, the cultural divide is converging. I, I was just in Akihabara just just last week, in fact, and I got there and I thought it's the sort of electronics and culture district of Tokyo, and it only looked a little Japanese to me anymore because the whole world looks like what we've learned from the kind of anime and manga stuff. So some of it's just cultural conversion takes longer than, than technological conversion, which is why you can ship hardware quickly, software moderately, and, and, and culture slowly. But it's, you know, we're in a post-Gangnam style world, right? The, there's, there's global Asian culture. The second issue is that the revolutions that have tended to happen in the Asian countries have tended to happen within monopolistic platforms. So if you look at, at Docomo, if you look at, at Cyware, if you look at CHTML, the, the sort of you know, phone-based web platform in Japan, or you look at, or you look at the, the social network in Korea, it was around a model that assumed there was a single national telecom infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It takes a while to adapt that stuff to, to a more open internet. This happened in France. They had Minitel. They had a whole bunch of services that were made for Minitel. It took a while for there to be a French web entrepreneur scene, but one eventually arrived. And then the third one is the cultural norms uh, around the actual companies and investments. Companies that are oriented around picking a handful of national champions almost specifically don't want a little company to come along and blow up the competition, right? So if you get Kairetz or if you get Chabal, then you get these systems that say, we would much rather the next idea come out of Samsung than out of some company we don't know and don't you know, have these relationships with. China is, in my view, the furthest along in getting out from under that problem. So I was thinking of the question about the cultural uh, cultures are actually mm -hmm. converging. I mean, in the last one year, I've seen some very interesting development. For example, the first Chinese Hugo Award winner. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three Luke. body problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Then there is um, the show, the the movie, The Martian, when they talk about the Chinese government help yeah. giving them yeah. a helping hand. Yeah. And then you're having all this Hollywood now. You need a Chinese presence because mm -hmm. you need to export Hollywood movies mm -hmm. into the Chinese market. Right. Well, this is your German German yeah. companies coming yeah. into China. Right. Thing. Yes. So, do you see that as a sign of convergence? Because I, I would never dream of a, a Chinese novel winning a Hugo Award. I know yeah, the, 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 the Xi Lu story is 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 yeah. pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, especially since the book is a book length, and, and uh, though I haven't read the other two because it hasn't been translated yet, seemingly a trilogy length exploration of themes tied to the Cultural Revolution. The thing starts in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, which you would think, boy, that's an experience that will not resonate well outside of China, but it's it's fantastic. So I think that that it is an example of some convergence. It's also an example, I think, of variability, you know, you've got, I forget the name of the book now, but the, the Scandinavian book about this sort of, well, there was Smilla's Sense of Snow, which also became, you know, yeah. a hit and which was, you know, intimately tied to this sort of frigid Nordic weather. So we, we are starting to have a, a, a more global culture. Some of it is convergence. There are more global experiences. Some of it is a willingness to read or experience ideas from cultures other than, you know, the culture the reader grew up in. And I think all of that stuff takes time, but it's clearly, that's where the world is heading. Some of it is planned, right? The Chinese only let in 20 Hollywood movies a year to give them leverage over things like The Martian. 
but you can walk into any DVD store in this town and get hundreds and hundreds of other movies, which is to say the Hollywood, Hollywood movies that are edited for Chinese sensibilities are not the only movies that appeal to Chinese sensibilities. Um, there are people who have been subtitling anime and manga in English because of their love for the stuff. We just had a situation where one of our very large bulletin boards called 4chan, which was copied from 2CH in Japan, was sold back to the Japanese man who also operates 2CH. So there are all of these sort of supranational convergences now. And I think that, you know, as you said, gaming is the first software that did that. And that was the first software where... Although Pong launched out of, you know, out of California in the 1970s, the Asian and particularly Japanese sensibilities tied to early video games are the world's culture. Super Mario is the world's culture. And then there are some, you know, other cultural norms that are expressed. But that is an industry where Japanese norms set the baseline and then there are other kinds of copies, whether it's Lineage or World of Warcraft or whatever. So the market for that kind of stuff is increasing. In a way, when I talk to my class about this, you know, we have a class that's basically half Chinese and half international at NYU, so we have a really pretty incredible representation of viewpoints in there. And in a class like that, one of the things that becomes clear is if there's ever genuinely an AI breakthrough in linguistics, where it's easy to get low-cost, high-quality translation between especially Chinese and English, but to a lesser extent Japanese and Korean, the flood of content that will follow that is going to be extraordinary. I mean, the Shishin Lu story is in part the story of Ken Liu's translation, which is also pretty, pretty fantastic. But it took a huge amount of work to get that book from, you know, to be, to be readable in two languages. If it becomes cheap to get roughly book quality translation in two languages, then then the cultural flow that we're seeing now is going to become a flood. Mm. So I I think that, I mean, if I, if I had to pick a city to watch, much as I, you know, it's, it's, it is not, sadly for me, my adoptive home of Shanghai, it's probably Seoul, right? In the 90s, we all told ourselves Tokyo is what the future was going to look like. But, but in fact, the sort of specificities of the Japanese environment, including especially the sort of Docomo model of a managed network, didn't translate well outside that country. While it was, it was Seoul in terms of connectivity and innovation that ended up looking a lot more like what the rest of the world looked like. But the one, the one big wild card for all of this is how much is the business community willing to invest in surprises? Because that's turned out to be you know, in the U.S., one of the big accelerants, right? That if you came along and described Google at a time when Yahoo was already far and away the dominant player in search, and you said, we want to launch a brand new search engine that will work so unbelievably much better that even though no one has ever heard of us, we are going to take on Yahoo in their own backyard. If the United States had been a country where managed relationships with large companies were the norm, Google would never have gotten a dime. So the question of innovation is in part a question of can you get enough resources to give something a shot as a small company? And the one thing that Shanghai does have is a, and, and this is in relatively recent years, an incredibly active investor scene and an incredibly active startup scene, as Beijing also has in Shenzhen. That will 
present a challenge for the government who politically prefers a small number of large players, but who economically prefer innovation. And that working out that challenge is going to be really hard. But certainly the bankers are putting their money where their mouths are and are investing in small firms. And if the government doesn't kill it, I think we're going to see an explosion of innovation moving from China outwards, which is going to make the trust issue even more, even more important and also probably even harder to solve. So that would be the central thesis of the, what you are trying to propagate in this book. You know, I think there, there are really the problem, the problem with, with having written this is in a way there are two different stories. One story is the one we have been talking about most here, which is this tension between services companies and the, and the government. But the other is why Xiaomi of all the services companies to, to illustrate this. And the other story I think that I want, you know, what, what, people to get is Xiaomi has been quite incredible by being a manufacturing company, but by starting services first in the first place. They shipped an operating system for a year and a half before they made a piece of hardware. So they experimented on other people's phones. They basically said, if you download MIUI, it will make your Samsung work better than it currently does. So there is, I think, a general tension in services, you know, inside versus services companies inside versus outside China. But it's especially acute because Xiaomi has been better than any other company in this country in figuring out, even though they're building and shipping a physical product, how to build a services-first, internet-centric manufacturing company. And that's that's been pretty incredible. They started with they started with a product before they had hardware. They started with users before they had a product. They recruited a hundred really active Android experts to test their software. They don't open stores that sell things. The Xiaomi Experience Centers are really places where you can look at things, but they keep their, you know, they, they keep their supply chain management problem either down by doing e-commerce or they sell them a million at a time to China Telecom. But they have from the beginning run a manufacturing company as if services are the goal and the internet is the platform. They didn't have to back into either of those things the way Samsung or Apple did. Um, they've started with that, and that gives them this native advantage, but it also makes them then, I think, the poster children, as it were, for this services inside versus outside China tension. Mm. And so I guess there will be many things to talk about, particularly where Xiaomi will eventually evolve towards, and there may be new examples from China that would be challenging this innovation. That's, that's exactly control. right. I mean, both of those are exactly right. I think Xiaomi has, is moving into drones. They're moving into air, air purifiers. You know, they got a watch. I mean, everybody has a watch. But they are, they are trying to take what they've learned about manufacturing and move into other products. They're always compared to Apple. Uh, Lejeune is sometimes called Liebs here as a sort of combination between his family name and Steve Jobs. Mm. They have been called the Chinese Apple. But really, Xiaomi is more like Amazon. They started with one product, but they had much bigger ambitions than that product, and they knew they were going to grow outside of the core product from the beginning and have behaved like it. They plowed all of their early revenues back into R&D and expansion rather than to profits, all things that Bezos and Amazon did as well. At the same time, though, and this is very good for China and for Chinese consumers, but bad for Xiaomi, they've shown everybody else how it's done. So 2014, in terms of press, 2014 will be the best year Xiaomi ever had because it was the last year in which anyone underestimated them. And now you look around and you see ads for Oppo, which is another Chinese phone company that's doing much more innovative stuff. 
Meiju, OnePlus, even, even old Huawei is actually now trying to ship stylish phones because just the kind of mid-market, mid-cost stuff that they made their money on in the phone market isn't enough anymore. So Xiaomi's problem in a way is that they are so good that they have caused everybody else to become better competitors. You know, if you, wanted a, if you wanted a metaphor for it, it's sort of like what Tiger Woods did to golf. Woods so dominated the entire previous field of golfers that basically anyone who could compete with Woods adopted something very much like Woods' strategy and style and, and, and regimen. And that's happening to Chinese electronics companies now. So, in a way, the next five years of Xiaomi's life, after this kind of incredible period of early and basically unbroken string of successes, is going to be a world in which they're trying to diversify quickly while their competitors are trying to take the lessons they've learned and compete with them. And that's going to be, it'll be interesting, but it's going to be a much more challenging period than the last five years. So, Clay, help my audience. How did they find you? You find me at the easiest place is C Shirky on Twitter. And my site is shirky.com, S-H-I-R-K-Y.com. You can find me at bernardleong.com or at bleongcw or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. And you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud. And please leave us a rating, five star to one star. We always love feedback. Once again, Clay, thank you so much for this great interview. That thank I you very much. Very nice to talk to you.